Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. In today's conclusion, I still feel as if some of this story is unfinished. I've spent the past nine months trying to figure out what happened in San Leandro 22 years ago and why. But the closer I get to the answer, the more I'm wondering if the answer doesn't really exist. What I really wish I could figure out is how this could have been prevented. How three people just trying to do their jobs could have made it out of Stuart's clutches unharmed. How if Stuart had just been a little more flexible, a little less proud, he could have sustained his family's legacy a legacy that could still be intact today. In the end, this is what San Leandro is known for. This is the legacy that Stuart inadvertently left behind. In this episode, I will seek out others to help me close this journey at the watering hole where Stuart's factory once stood and with final thoughts from the California Department of Food and Agriculture. From KCBS Radio and Odyssey, I'm Natalia Gravich, and this is The Sausage King. Episode 8, What's a Castle Without a King? By the time Stewart's trial started, the Santos Linguisa factory had already been shuttered. The defense actually wanted to bring the jury out there during the proceedings to get a feel for the place. Already, the events of the tragedy had marred the factory's presence. Once again, here is Judge Vernon Nakahara. He needs no preamble at this point. It's called a jury view. Mm. 25 plus years, I've only done it one, two, three times. And so before I made my decision, um, I went out there and with, you know, with staff and all that, security and all that. and viewed everything that I'd seen on the video and uh, and I denied the request because okay. uh, it, it, it after looking at the video gave me a really eerie feeling <laughs> just me personally mm-hmm. looking down at the concrete where the bodies were mm-hmm. it's all cleaned up but it is just a little, just a little too eerie for me. Okay. And I thought that would prejudice the defense, even though they thought it was a good thing to do. What was the argument that it was a good thing? Well, I guess they wanted the jurors to see spatially 
what it was like, the distance from the front of the sausage factory to the street, the route Earl Willis ran, those kinds of things, where its office was, where the video was. Um, but it was just too creepy for me. I can imagine. Um, it was just... <laughs> I mean, it was just too weird, too creepy, too eerie. Mm. Yeah, so I denied it. I, I did not think that would help them. I thought it would prejudice them more. And they would have seen the video before we got there. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't think so. But yeah, that was something that the jurors never saw. The task fell to Jake Francisco, who's been another frequent guest on this podcast. Tweedy's former best friend and the executor of his estate, he had to clean things out of the factory. And he eventually had to face what to do with the place itself. We heard from Jake primarily in episode two, as he talked about what he did with Tweedy's money and property. But the factory was another story. No one wanted it. Closed it. Couldn't sell it. And Tweedy had owned that property, all the, the bar in front, all that property there he owned. And on Thornton Avenue, about three houses right next to it. Next one, skip one and another one too. He, owned, he was buying a lot of property in that area. Who owns it now, do you know? No. The... the, the, the that property? No, probably the people that bought the bar, I would imagine. It's the Washington Club. The Washington Club is a bar in San Leandro that has shared the space with the Santos Linguisa factory for decades. Most recently, it was purchased by a man named Bob in 2013 and just sold in February to a man named Johnny Harvey. The factory was in the back of the lot with the bar in the front. The factory building itself is still standing, but it's unclear what it might be used for today. I've seen photos that Bob, the former bar owner, took himself. The space is shuttered, full of abandoned chairs and tables, cardboard boxes, even what looks like a couple of washing machines stacked in a vacant, concrete room. But the bar in front is still fully functioning, catering to local regulars. I went there myself in December and again in February as I was winding up my reporting to get a feel for the place. I was surprised right off the bat by how warm the atmosphere was. The interior itself was dressed in various shades of blue, with a long bar counter and several stools set up alongside it. Off along the wall were dark wood high-top tables, and in the center, a pool table. But the dominating feature was a mural above the bar, featuring a crowd of what I was told were the bar's regulars from over the decades. Neither Tweedy nor Stuart were featured, although I was told by the bar manager that Tweedy liked to come in from time to time when he was in charge. I arrived at the bar on a rainy Wednesday afternoon in December at around 3 p.m. By arriving early, I was hoping to avoid a crowd and to get a chance to speak to the bar staff about the factory's tragic legacy. Much to my surprise, regulars were already there, but they welcomed me in and most were more than happy to comment on the case. He arguably made the best linguisa. People used to get it and um, send it around the country because it was really good. Oh yeah, it was really good. It was, it was, in my opinion, the best. But so, let's see, he, um, it was a family recipe, very, very good recipe, and um, 
as times changed, uh, the health department's uh, restrictions changed and things like that to the point where he uh, was required to modify the recipe, the family recipe. Um, I don't know all the particulars, temperatures, things like that, I think were involved. Um, he was very reluctant to do so because he wanted, well, I can't say, I can't speak for him, but he was reluctant to do so. Yes. And um, I think there was a couple times where he either falsified some things or, you know, uh, did a couple things that, that they caught him on, and then uh, he was on their radar after that. So they, they paid more attention to him than previously, and uh, he was not one to, to kowtow to, to people. I think he was pretty, pretty headstrong from what I heard. I was quickly accepted into the fold of the half dozen regulars relaxing in the bar's warmth out of the rain. But before I was allowed to interview the manager at the bar, who had a unique connection to the story, I was made to engage in one of the bar's time-honored traditions. Lori, the manager, held a stuffed horse head attached to a wooden stick aloft, you know, like the toys kids have, where you straddle the wooden part and run around pretending to ride a horse. Lori insisted I had to run around the pool table with the horse before I was granted my interview. I dated him in high school. I went out with him twice. Twice. And he was a little bit weird, okay. but really handsome. Uh, we went up to uh, Joaquin Miller Park, and we drank <laughs> Lancers, like a wine. I, I can't even tell you what a Lancers was. It was a, a wine cooler type before Bartles and James and all that stuff. But Stuart was a really good-looking guy, really nice, and he just was weird. Um, he wouldn't look you in the eye, so I, that's why only twice. <laughs> I was like, yeah, we're done. Um, but, you know, he was just a regular kid. I mean, we were in high school. Um, and then when I heard about what happened, I was not shocked. But I also have heard rumors, and I don't know if this is true at all, but I did hear rumors that he fixed his brother's motorcycle to where he would have an accident. And I also heard he, he pushed his younger brother in front of the train. Lori was the first person I'd met who believed that not only did Stuart have something to do with his younger brother Stanley's death on the train tracks, but also that he might have had something to do with his older brother Stefan's death. Uh, that was in 1979, I believe. And he was on Lakeshore Road and he was riding his motorcycle and he had an accident. But I heard, and again, this is conjecture, I don't know what happened, um, but I did hear that when Stuart was in prison, he said that he had fixed his brother's motorcycle so that he would have an accident because he wanted to inherit the sausage factory. And then when Stanley got hit by a train, he also said that was my, that was him too. So I don't, you know, I don't know. I really don't know if it's true, but I wouldn't put it past him because of what happened later. Lori did have an inside story of what happened the night before the shooting the first time I'd heard anything like this. But I can tell you one story that I know for sure. The night before Stuart did this, um, he had given the keys to his Corvette to a mutual friend of ours and said, something's gonna happen tomorrow. So he rented a limo 
and he had $30,000 in his pocket. And my friend, our friend, which I won't name, um, they went over to the city, San Francisco, and they went to a strip club and they were doing cocaine, a lot of cocaine. And he was paying the strippers for lap dances and whatever else. And when he came back the next morning, which is the day that that's, this happened, um, he was coked up. And he had had cameras installed two days before because he wanted to see the walking down the driveway, which is right here. And um, he knew what was going to happen. He said, I got a gun. I have ammunition. They're not going to make me fucking do what they think they're going to make me fucking do. I'm not turning down my temperature. I'm going to do my sausage like I've always done it or linguisa or whatever. And he planned it. And so my friend, our mutual friend, has come in since then and said, yeah, I was with him the night before. And this is what he told me. Here's my keys to my Corvette. Something's going to happen tomorrow. We're coked out. He's going to kill people tomorrow. And he did. Did Stuart do cocaine a lot? As far as I know, when I knew him, no. Because, you know, he's 19. Um, and this was, I think he was in his late 20s or early 30s. Um, but apparently he did because when he was in prison, he ballooned up to another 100 pounds. So once you stop doing coke, you're going to gain weight. And he did gain a lot of weight. And that's, he died of a heart problem because he weighed so much. But yeah, I believe I believe that he was a drug addict. I do believe that. I can't confirm it. I can't deny it. I never did it with him. We were young. But he was he was a good kid, man. He was a good kid. And a friend of mine who graduated a year before I did, the same year as Stuart, when they had their ten year reunion, she said he was weird. She said he came to the reunion, he sat at a table by himself and was very quiet and didn't like participate in any conversations. He just sat there and watched people, which I thought was weird because Stuart was very interactive with a lot of us in high school. So, you know, it's just, it's a strange story and a lot of, a lot of things don't make sense, but a lot of things do in retrospect. In the bar, Stewart's crimes seem far away. But one can't forget the ripple effect his actions have had, not just on the city of San Leandro, but on the way state food and meat inspection is done as well. Dr. Annette Jones, who joined the California Department of Food and Agriculture shortly after the shootings, observed these changes firsthand. We heard from her in the previous episode as she made it a point to attend Stewart's sentencing, even though she'd never met the inspectors that he'd killed. Um, when I first started, it was... Um Bill Schlein and the others involved did work in the the division that I currently manage. And when I first started, it was it was fairly somber at work. Um, and you can tell that people really had been um, impacted in a way that really surprised them. You know, we're the Department of Food and Agriculture. We work with farmers and ranchers and processors. And, you know, everybody knows that you just never can anticipate when things go tragically wrong. You know, we all know that that could happen, but I think it was very shocking to um, our culture and our staff members um, when we did suffer those losses. And, um, you know, I can remember my boss relaying that, you know, he just, he, he thought, you know, he would never change. He'd never fully recover from it. And in the wake of the tragedy, the department took stock of its procedures and discussed how things might need to change to prevent this from happening again. Well, you know, like any um, organization that, 
that um, goes through something like this, th there was, um, you know, questioning of policy and procedures as there should be. There always should, that should always occur. So um, there was a task force that was set up and they really looked into our investigator procedures and safety and, um, you know, just to make sure that if there was anything that we could have done, you know, you, again, things are unpredictable. So sometimes there's really not anything you can do to prevent something. But the department really wanted to just make sure that if we could prevent a tragedy like this in the future, obviously, you know, there was a desire to do so. It wasn't clear at first what would help or what inspectors would even be comfortable with doing differently. One idea that was floated, which was met with some controversy, was whether or not to provide inspectors with something to arm themselves with. So our investigators are not peace officers. We don't, they're not post-trained, which is the training that peace, the very extensive training that peace officers go through, and they don't carry weapons to protect themselves. Dr. Jones isn't sure what type of protection was discussed, if it was pepper spray or a taser of some kind. But it was decided that arming inspectors wouldn't necessarily prepare them for how to best handle a hostile situation. The best thing to do, they decided, was to have inspectors walk away from those situations if they came up. We should continue, um, you know, unarmed and just continue with the policy. If there's ever hostility, we need to back away from the, the, from the situation. We need to extricate ourselves and, you know, leave that for another day. Um, the... The reasoning behind that is the vast majority of when we do have to enforce regulations, it's um, not the vast majority, almost 100% of the time, you know, while nobody likes it when um, compliance is being applied to their situation, they, you know, most of the part, they understand why, they, you know, there's, it's not contentious like in this situation, but we do, we do, you know, people are people and they're very diverse. <laughs> So sometimes there is some contention, but our policy was then, and it still is now, to remove ourselves from a tense situation uh, for the safety of both the individual and our own employees. And in extreme cases, law enforcement is always brought in to provide extra protection. And what we do if, um, you know, we do it, we do sense that type of tension or um, we have some concerns, we work with law enforcement. So we'll work with you know, a sheriff or local police department or with the um, California Highway Patrol, who's kind of the enforcement officer for state, state workers. There have been moments where this type of assistance has been called in the years since the factory shooting, but there has not been another incident of violence recorded since then. So um, there have been a few instances since then when we could tell there was some agitation upon the part of the person um, you know, where compliance was required. And so, you know, we'll just work with directly with, um, you know, the police department to just keep things calm. And generally the presence of an officer really just calms the situation. Um, that's been pretty effective. And then the other thing that we did besides, you know, trying to go through that thought process was we just re-looked at our policies and procedures, um, which we do periodically now. Right now we're going through, you know, yet another, um, effort to make sure that our investigation policy and procedures are, you know, current and our investigators are trained adequately um, and they get the support they need. The department trains the inspectors on how to handle hostility when it arises in groups and individually. 
pretty much all businesses anywhere, anywhere, I think take hostility in the workforce. So we have um, training that's, uh, we can do it online now. <laughs> um, it used to have to be in person, but um, annual training on hostility in the workforce. So how to recognize, how to diffuse, how to back away. And then on top of that, um, we, right after the event, we, our investigators across the department started meeting together to talk about issues. Um, that's kind of come and gone through the years, how, you know, they've come together as a group, you know, that's all the divisions. But what we've done in our division is we've continued to pull the investigation investigators um, together um, for individual training, like um, we'll have we'll hire someone to come in and do investigative techniques and that means you know like interviewing you know to try and get information and that type of thing the legacy of the tragedy still lingers with dr jones even now more than 20 years later and influences her decision making and her role in the department even though that just barely touched on my career with the department i'm now in a position where you know ultimately i'm responsible for the safety of all of the employees in the division. And we do meat inspection, we do inspection at milk and dairy food farms and processors. Uh, we, we do animal health inspections. We look into theft of cattle. So there's a lot of employees that I feel personally responsible for. And I think because when I started, there was an employee that lost their life. I take that really seriously. I mean. That still goes through my head, you know, that it could happen, you know, before that, I, you, you kind of, you think it could happen, but it doesn't feel like it could happen. But then when you actually see someone's family and um, I actually did go to the sentencing hearing, um, you know, right, right after that event. And I just can, and I was a very young employee at that time. And I just remembered, I, I'd never witnessed something so serious in my life when you're sentenced for murder. And um, it was very sobering. So I think that makes, you know, some people might, um, you know, sometimes safety, safety precautions, people say, oh, you know, you're being too worried or, you know, that's never going to happen. But I never feel that way because of that. So if someone says, you know, you're being overcautious, I feel pretty comfortable saying, uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> Things can go wrong. So we, we do need to keep that front and center, you know, every day. Jean Hillary, Tom Quadros, and Bill Shaleen are remembered in a memorial page on the USDA's website. Their pictures, along with the survivor, Earl Willis, are arranged in a column along the bottom of the page. Jean is smiling brightly with classically large 80s-style earrings and hair. Bill and Tom both have white hair and shoe brush mustaches. But while Tom has a large smile, Bill looks more serious. Earl has on large glasses, the light reflecting off them and casting his face in a glow. Both Jean's and Bill's children declined to speak with me for this podcast. I was in touch with Tom Quadros' sister-in-law, Kathy, for a few months in the beginning of my reporting. Tom's brother wouldn't be able to speak with me for personal reasons, but Kathy had attended Stewart's trial every day along with him and remembered the events clearly. She at first expressed interest in being interviewed and even helped me connect to other inspector's family members. But Kathy was juggling a slew of family matters at the time and after a while stopped returning my calls. 
I wish I had been able to learn more about Jean, Tom, and Bill outside of their professions. What I have been able to glean from court testimony, the countless articles written about the case, and the memorial page, is that all three were passionate, hardworking, and dedicated. Scrolling through the page, the USDA outlined all the changes it made to its Food Safety and Inspection Service Division, including the establishment of a Workplace Violence Prevention Task Force and the implementation of new safety training. But what struck me most about the USDA page was not the description of what happened or the various policy changes that were made after the tragedy. We already know enough about that. Instead, it was a paragraph just at the end that among the praise and acknowledgement of the inspectors, they often performed their duties, quote, without thanks or recognition. It felt fitting and accurate. While Stuart got to be the sausage king, in life and now in death, what were they? The only recognition that Gene, Tom, and Bill and the surviving Inspector Earl got was in their end, and it feels entirely inadequate. What I learned while reporting on this podcast was that recognition isn't often given to those that deserve it. Stewart didn't deserve the recognition that his family's sausage, their legacy, awarded him, even though he spent most of his life trying to convince others and himself that he did. And the inspectors that died, they deserved far more recognition than they got. Which, although unsatisfying, is the best conclusion I can draw from this story. And not one I will soon forget. The Sausage King is researched, written, and narrated by me, Natalia Gravich. Matt Pittman, Don Bastida, and Eric Brooks are our producers. With production, sound design, and editing by Matt Pittman. Cover art created by Dre Irabaran. Social media by Greg Wong. Jennifer Selig is brand manager for KCBS Radio. The Sausage King is a production of Odyssey. Listen and subscribe on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.